There is a huge leap from a self-writing Google Doc to a self-launching missile. Or is there? <laughs> Welcome to the Powers That Beat Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Ben Landy. It's Thursday, June 1st. Today, Baratunde Thurston is on the pod for a rollicking deep-dive debate about AI. Are we on the verge of an extinction-level event, or is everyone just panicking over nothing? All that and more on a special episode of The Powers That Be. Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am. I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. The Chili Pad Bed Cooling System is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. This offer is available exclusively for Powers That Be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.com dot me slash powers because you're not just investing in better sleep you're creating a better life happy thursday everybody i'm ben landy on week three keeping the big chair warm for peter hamby and i'm particularly delighted because today i'm talking to the one and only baratunde thurston welcome what's up ben Baratunde, I wanted to have you on today because, frankly, I have no idea now what to make of the panic that we're seeing over artificial intelligence. Like many other people, I think I was blown away at first by some of the things I was seeing. I was a little bit freaked out by ChatGPT, by the progress we saw with generative AI, with visuals, with video. These things are improving literally every day. Yeah. But I've also been feeling more skeptical and a little bit cynical recently about AI leaders telling us the apocalypse is literally around the corner, that today's chat GPT is tomorrow's nuclear bomb. But I want to get your perspective on all of this, because as somebody who's been writing about this for a long time, who's been thinking deeply on these issues, you're also someone who's an investor with companies in the tech space. You know, you study the intersection of citizenship and democracy and technology. Are we all starting to get a little bit too worried about AI, or are we still not worried enough? I don't know that there's a right set of emotions to have. It's not, nothing's obvious to me anymore. Is it overblown? 
Is this just autocomplete on steroids and everybody needs to calm the hell down? Maybe, but I think what feels clear to me is that we're facing a set of impacts and capabilities that are moving with a speed of both capacity growth and user adoption that we've never seen before. And, you know, we've had a lot of technological revolutions in the history of our species. Fire, the wheel, you know, like there's been a lot of stuff that has come, but it's not always been paired with an equal and matching growth in the people using it. When the automobile came, it wasn't like the next day, everyone in the world is like driving a car or even the next year or even the next decade. So there's been time to put some guardrails up to fail, not on the base of billions, but on the base of thousands or tens of thousands, maybe even millions. So there's a categorical shift in risk assessment when something that is novel and beta test level is now available to billions. And I think what we're seeing is a scrambling by regulators in the world, by citizens in the world, by technologists in the world who are like, what the hell are we doing? Still got to make money, keep doing it, but what are we doing? So you have this odd situation where the proponents of a technology who are heavily indebted and invested in it are also on Capitol Hill being like, I don't know about this technology. It could like destroy us all, man. And that's a weird, I, I acknowledge that that is very weird. I want to attempt to get a little bit more specific, which yeah. is obviously hard when you're talking about something that is extremely abstract. <laughs> I know for myself, you know, I, I sort of put these risks into different buckets. Obviously, AI is already bringing economic changes that we can see, social changes that are disruptive, where, you know, you can have a bit of code that can copy my voice or your voice that could like, theoretically, we could have an artificial intelligence producing this podcast in, in a couple of weeks. And it might not be very good, but you can kind of foresee what some of the issues would be there. Like, yeah, you or I might have a legal case against that developer. There might be an issue with disinformation. If Baratunda AI is going out and telling people to, you know, vote for RFK Jr., whatever, to me, those are interesting, worrisome problems, but I can kind of predict them I, and I, I can understand yeah. and grapple with them. You know, you, you can also see the same thing playing out in other industries where you can imagine white collar jobs disappearing as AI transforms the labor market. And that's like maybe 90, 95, 99.9% .9 of all the use cases we're potentially talking about. And then when people talk about the apocalyptic scenarios, I feel like we're talking about this 0.1% of potential cases out yeah. there that they're, they're terrifying and they're unpredictable. And I honestly have no idea what they are. And I feel like we're always talking about them at a very <laughs> abstract 30,000 foot level. Like, Baratuni, what are we actually talking? Are we talking about Skynet? Like, let's, let's drill down. Are we talking about AGI? Yeah. You know, I've been popping in and out of this Powers That Be daily podcast. I've written now four pieces in Puck or five. I've actually lost count. I think I'm at five now. Essays about AI. And I'm a learning machine i'm a learning model just like you know gpt and i'm kind of iteratively growing and establishing kind of a new set of parameters uh, around this whole thing and beliefs so are we talking about skynet short answer maybe what we're talking about is um underneath of chat gpt of mid-journey and dolly of uh, voice emulation software that you might find in podcasting tools that are now letting you mimic your own voice. 
are a set of models, mathematical generally models, that interpret the world as language, learn through massive amounts of correlation, and then are able to perform within certain domains at a really high level. They can pass tests, they can identify objects in photos, they can mimic voices, they can generate art, etc. The fear on the Skynet piece is that you take something that's capable of learning and then you connect it to the physical world. So much of what we've been talking about is, is a virtual expression of power. It's drafting a memo. Ooh, it's going to be a, a killer PowerPoint deck. Like, what is that about? That's not, <laughs> right. there is a huge leap from a self-writing Google Doc to a self-launching missile. Or is there? <laughs> and what has researchers concerned, I'm going to try to see if I can itemize this in a finite number of steps. One, the capabilities of these systems does not grow in a steady pace. There will be years or months of stagnation and then suddenly a discrete leap in capabilities in a moment. And you're like, what was that? So people who are trying to make predictions can't. If you ask someone, what do you think AI is going to be capable of in five years? You can't trust the answer because they don't know. Because the thing that they thought might have happened 10 years from now happened last week. So that already puts us in a like, huh, so we can't just do extrapolation, right? The curve doesn't match our, our concept of like what forecasting looks and feels like. So lack of ability to forecast, cool. Testing. These systems, they're trying to create tests to understand what they're capable of, they're having a hard time making tests fast enough. Humans are losing our ability to have a commanding sort of intellectual perspective on this stuff because these models are getting more and more capable so quickly. Number three, the line between the virtual world and the physical world is tenuous. And so I can say, oh, what kind of killer Google Doc could we be worried about? But these things are connected to the internet. And from every docu-series in the form of Terminator or spin-offs of that universe, it's always a terrifying sci-fi moment when you take the AI mind and you plug it into the internet <laughs> because then it can reach out and do stuff. So those are all still theoretical abstract things. Here are some concrete examples of crossovers, real-world effects. Some I've written Please. about, some I haven't. One. There's an AI model that was trained to correlate camera footage with the bouncing around of a Wi-Fi signal in a room. So you say, here AI, here's video feed of what's happening in the room. Here's live interaction of the innards of this router's interpretation of the Wi-Fi signal bouncing off the walls, et cetera. Train it, train it, train it, train it. Take the camera feed, shut it off. Now, dear AI model, tell me what's happening in the room. How could it do that? It doesn't have access to the camera anymore. It's built a model of the room through seeing the Wi-Fi signal bounce around. So a Wi-Fi router is a camera now for that AI model. Most routers don't just willingly give a user access to that, but some have security vulnerabilities which will allow them to release that level of detail of their monitoring of themselves. These AI models can exploit security vulnerabilities. It would take a talented hacker 
years in the game to understand how to exploit this, that, or the other. The dark web's made it easier. Sometimes people post exploits. There's a secondary market for this stuff. Well, now mm -hmm. you can tell a chatbot, hey, look at this code. Find the weakness in it. Now, write me something to exploit that weakness. So anyone with a chatbot is decreasingly theoretically able to exploit a vulnerability in a Wi-Fi router, which is increasingly capable of performing as if it were a video camera. That's two, two dots, you know, two, two sets of leaps and you put those together, pretty frightening stuff. I recently saw a presentation by Aza Raskin and Tristan Harris of the Center for Humane Technology, who have been doing this roadshow, talking about the AI dilemma, and that's where I'm getting some of these examples from. It's just the things that felt like quantum leaps before may not be. And so which, what you're experiencing, Ben, and what a lot of us are experiencing is like, okay, so is this thing going to launch a missile? I don't think so. I don't think so right now. But image recognition and connection to a drone that is armed, there's just a very short step from an AI system being capable of killing, right? If it's plugged into that machine. Now, the military is not going to allow that yet, yet, but they would want it. You know, a lot of militaries would want to put a robot in battle instead of a human. Yeah, the idea of a Terminator, of a humanoid robot armed to the teeth, slaughtering hundreds, thousands, or millions of people, or of an AI system getting hold of the nuclear codes and wiping us all out. To me, that's that's not the, the real threat. That's possible. That's maybe that zero point something percent. But there's something short of that where, you know, AI gives us all enhanced capabilities for good, for novelty, and for bad. And so as a nation that is already flooded with firearms, and we see our gun violence numbers, whether it's suicide or homicides or accidental killings, are through the roof relative to almost any other nation, think of these AI systems as potential weapons. Think of them merely as able to exploit software weaknesses and putting that capability into the hands of any troll on the internet. People who used to just talk trash can now deliver on it a little bit more. And that is a chaotic world to live in. It doesn't necessarily wipe out the human race, but it destabilizes society to an extraordinary degree. And I'm not talking about job loss. I'm not talking about misinformation. That's just a particular example of imagine everybody running around with the ability to hack shit. That's nuts. And, and the things that required skill before don't because we've outsourced skill to these learning models and then given everyone access to them very, very quickly. Right. So you, you don't need to have a PhD in computer science anymore to spend years trying to figure out an exploit to take down the electric grid. Now maybe you can ask ChatGPT7 two years from now to play around with code until it figures out some way to do that on its own. And, and you've basically put these weapons into the hands of anyone, theoretically all around the world. Yeah, and, and that's why when you hear people, when I hear Tristan specifically talking about ways to regulate, they use this kind of nuclear weapons framework because we need some kind of arms control. Right? If, you, if you just look at this as one interpretation, one operational capability of AI is weapons, is, is threats, increasing the access that people have to impose threats, then what is our arms control treaty for this tool? 
I'm not going to do it full justice, but there's this idea of theory of mind that I saw Tristan and Aza talking about, you know, a machine's ability to be aware of itself and to have a sense of self-identity. And you see little hints of it in the weird Sydney freakouts, these hallucinations from chatbots that come through very long-term exposure that Microsoft in this case had to shut down when Bing was like, I'm Sydney and I want to break up your marriage to Kevin Roos at the New York Times. And so you got to be very careful what you wish for. And so there are these philosophical thought problems. Like if you ask a machine capable of nearly complete power to you know, make as much money off of wood trading as possible, it will probably deforest the earth. Like if it has access to tools to do this, just it's gonna be kind of single-minded about this mission. And so having guardrails and oversight, transparency become really, really, really important. There's a reason we don't want every country in the world to have nuclear weapons. All right, we've got to take a quick break. And Baratini, when we get back, I want to ask you more about this regulatory question that you just brought up. So Barry Tunde, on Tuesday, I'm sure you saw this, there were hundreds of AI experts and industry leaders. They put out this statement, just a single sentence statement from the uh, Center for AI Safety, which basically said that, quote, mitigating the risk of extinction from AI should be a global priority alongside other societal scale risks, such as pandemics and nuclear war. You and I were just talking a little bit about sort of what that looks like, maybe less Skynet launching nukes to destroy humanity so it can maximize wood or paperclip production or whatever that's gotten out of control. Maybe it's more like AI tools getting into the hands of disaffected teenagers who decide they can, you know, create the equivalent of a dirty bomb attack on the electrical grid from their basement. But let's get into this regulatory question, because, again, I, I feel like this is an area where everyone, including Sam Altman at OpenAI, who, who signed on to this, he was went before Congress the other week, everyone sort of agrees in principle that there ought to be oversight or regulation of AI, of, of the models of AI companies. But I have no idea what that would look like in practice. And I, I don't think anyone's really talking about that yet. If you were sitting in the Oval Office right now, how would you go about that process of even beginning to determine what a structure would look like for regulating or limiting the explosive, out-of-control growth of AI? If I were sitting in the Oval Office right now, I would ask for access to their finest whiskey. <laughs> yeah. um, Careful. <laughs> and, and then we could have a real conversation. And then I would make some phone calls uh, to the AI Now Institute, to the Data Society Research Institute, to... Uh, the people who run Algorithmic Justice League, to the Center for Humane Technology, I would phone a friend quickly because I am not knowledgeable enough and no single person is uh, to, to many of the earlier points. There's just too much constant development for any one expert uh, to be able to answer that question well. And I'm barely an expert. I'm not an expert, but I'm over-informed relative to most of our listeners, I assume. So with all those caveats, I would... Think about principles and how we would try to write some rules to make sure those principles were adhered to. I would look at principles around transparency and understanding what's going on, what's even inside of these models, how they operate. There's a degree of opacity to these things by design. OpenAI, ironically named company, because they have not revealed their training data. So we don't know what's going on inside of there. It's, it's a proprietary trade secret from an open labeled company. The same way we have kind of nuclear inspections and there's a level of transparency around that, we need sort of 
AI model inspectors and councils of experts who are constantly looking at these things. I think there's consumer safety, FDA level regulations that could apply to something like this, where before a tool is allowed for broad public release, it has to go through some vetting and some testing on smaller and then increasingly larger sets of populations in a more controlled manner. OpenAI has unleashed things on the world. The latest number I saw is that they may have had a, a billion monthly visitors to their site in the past month. That's ridiculous for that company in particular and its CEO to be on the hill claiming, oh, we gotta be worried, we gotta be worried, and yet going full speed ahead <laughs> with deployment it's just, it's not credible. And so there needs to be some kind of authority to check that power um, and say, no, 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 the way we can't release car products or certain food. Okay, so there needs to be some restraint on like who gets access to these things at what point. I, I guess the, the counterpoint to that would be like, how do you stop the bad guys who aren't gonna follow these laws anyway? Because you know you can go out right now, a lot of these AI models we're talking about, they are open source. Open AIs, ironically, yeah. are not open source, but a lot of them are there on the internet. You can tinker with them right now. You can get 100, 200 grand, whatever resources are required to train one of these models. It does take a lot of compute power. But you can go ahead and get your hands on one of these things right now, and then you're, you're off to the races. And I wonder how you stop that. I mean, you mentioned, you know, you could have the government audit these things. You could have licensing. You could have permits. And of course, some guardrails are going to be better than no guardrails. But I guess yeah. I'm left wondering, does that prevent Skynet? Or does it just guarantee that the next Google is going to come out of Beijing instead of the Bay Area? Yeah, these are good and interesting questions. <sighs> There's um, someday I'll have a really great response to this, but right now I'll fumble through it quickly. To refuse to impose a restriction because it isn't perfectly enforceable is to cede way too much ground, right? We have laws against murder. We still have murderers. What's the point if people are still gonna be able to murder? <laughs> we have taxation consequences. If you don't pay your taxes, this or that. some people are, just aren't gonna pay their taxes. Do we refuse to have tax enforcement because some people are gonna cheat the system? So the inability to perfectly enforce a rule is no argument against having a rule in the first place. That's just the history of humanity. We're going for impact. We're going for influence. And we need laws as well as social norms to enforce a set of broadly acceptable behavior knowing there's always gonna be outliers. But to have a world with no rules, that's chaos, that's anarchy. And that is not something to embrace. I think that's truly, truly dangerous. And the fallacy of it is present with our gun culture, right? Reasonable people have all kinds of opinions, but the data suggests that just having access to weapons increases the number of people who will use them for all kinds of reasons, not just target practice, but self-inflicted harm practices. And do we just give up? Give every baby a gun the day they're born because the second amendment is right there. That's insane. So yeah, we will reduce the number of people who have access to extraordinarily damaging technological powers until such time as we also have the capability of wielding that power. And I think the flip side or the complement to regulation and enforcement is increasing our capacity to handle this power to begin with, which is what a gun rights person would say. They'd say gun safety, firearms training, et cetera. And so there's also 
you know, for our social cohesion to exist, we need to be well-practiced at democracy and sharing power and taking care of each other so that we don't just unleash these broad capabilities that can also concentrate wealth and distribute threat more widely and not be able to handle them. Dr. Sam Rader, someone who I cited a lot in my writings at Puck, former psychotherapist, she says, you know, we're raising AI. That, you know, I've even used terms that we're in creating a new population on our planet. So if we are parents to this thing, what values are we instilling in it? And what values are we instilling in ourselves to be able to handle it? So there, there's a negative case, restriction, regulation. There's also a positive set of actions we can do, which doesn't have too much to do with being able to code a computer and everything to do with emotional intelligence, with collaboration, with power sharing, so that when someone shows up with extraordinary power, they are also wielding extraordinary responsibility. Spider-Man, maybe. Spider-Man. That's really well put. I'm so glad you made that point, that the perfect shouldn't be the enemy of the good. And also that, you know, even if you don't have total faith in Washington to solve this issue, and, and you know, I don't know that Chuck Schumer is the guy who knows the most about AI or is going to be yeah. the person I would put in charge of putting these guardrails in place, but at least people are talking about it. And I don't know that anyone's really... The hints that I've seen of how this would play out, this is the last you know, thing I'd say in my White House meeting. An agency is probably the right thing. A, a new agency staffed with experts, well-funded. You know, you recruit people who used to work in these fields. Some of them will go willingly. Some have already quit their jobs because they're that worried. So you hire them on as consultants. You know, we we can do that. And and it has data experts and algorithmic experts and machine learning people and neuro neuroscience people who can have the capability and the enforcement ability and just the assessment ability to look at this more deeply. I don't want Lindsey Graham or Chuck Schumer, Mitch McConnell, any of them to be directly in charge, but they shouldn't need to be. That's not what our system's about. They should take our will and our authority and say, let's find the best people and representatives of the public itself. Uh, so it's not just scientists and eggheads, it's parents, it's teachers, it's kids, and help sort this out and, and get us to a place that's better than not trying at all. And that's what gives me a little hope. It's hard to find hope if you just focus on Washington politics these days. But it looks like we're going to avoid a debt ceiling catastrophe. So coming into town last minute the way I did, I won't have to go up to the hill myself and have a conversation with these people. And, and they are moving faster on this AI thing than they did with the social media stuff or data privacy in general. And so maybe this is the thing, now that you've got folks in the industry too, who are alarmed and they don't want the death of humanity on their hands. So I'll take whatever motivation they have. Let's use that momentum and, uh, and try to rein this in and, and get the best parts of it. There's so much good that we can do with it. You and I have been focused on the threat, rightfully so. That's what's in the headlines right now. But it's not just a scary thing. It could also be a really beautiful thing if we handle it right. So let's handle it like Olivia Pope. <laughs> Very tuned. I don't know if this was your stump speech, but I'm, I'm voting for you for this committee when they put it together. Uh, that's our show. Um, oh, and by the way, before I let all of our listeners go, just a reminder that on June 12th, Matt Bellany is co-hosting a screening and a panel of National Geographic's A Small Light in Los Angeles. It's open to Puck subscribers, so just reach out to fritz at puck.news if you want to register. Thanks so much for stopping by and doing this. Always appreciate having you on. Yeah, appreciate you. Thank you. And uh, hello, Peter. I'm sure he's listening uh, to us uh, all the time. So enjoy yourself, my friend. See you soon. 
Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.